Hey, what's up everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak. This is our last teaching panel. Thank you for everyone who's participated in these over the last few weeks. Um, it's been a really insightful experience, honestly. I'm really glad that we did this, and I'm hopeful uh, that we can put together some other panels in the future. Um, I still don't have a name for this spinoff, though, if you're keeping track at home. Um... Uh, uh, in any case, uh, this is our last panel, um, and after this we're going to take a couple of weeks off. Um, I'm not really sure how long we're going to take off, but we're going to take a little bit of time off, uh, since we didn't have any kind of summer break for the show, um, because so many people wanted to come on um, and, and kind of use their pandemic time to kind of process their stuff, so uh, we need a little bit of a break. Um, so yeah. A couple of weeks off, two, three, four weeks, dare I say, off, um, and then we'll be back. We've got episodes already banked um, to carry us through to the end of the year. Um, so yeah, this is our, our last panel. Um, and this week, we have doctors Letitia Brown, Cameron Herman, Jacqueline Schildekraut, and Ben Dowd Arrow, talking about their experiences, teaching and doing scholarship and the research in the pandemic. Uh, this is episode 51 of Untenured Tracks, I hope. Okay, so this is uh, the fourth and final teaching panel on this uh, still unnamed Untenure Tracks spinoff project, um, talking about how the last several months in the pandemic have affected how we view teaching, how we view scholarship, just our, our approach to our jobs in general. Um, I'm going to go around uh, the Zoom, and I actually forgot to start recording on Zoom because I'm an idiot. Uh, <laughs> All right, now we're recording on Zoom. So I'm going to go around and have uh, people introduce themselves. I'll go around clockwise as I see it on my screen. Um, so, Cameron, how about you start? Hi, how's everybody doing? We're doing. Hi. <laughs> <This is> solemn <laughs> nodding. Um, yep. Cameron Herman, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Africana Studies at SMU. No, starting my second year. Oh, you're right down the road. I see goes a ways away. I looked it up on the map when you said it. I was like, yeah, it's, you're, close, you're the closest of the floor. Uh, Jackie? Uh, wow, that was a good transition. Uh, Jackie Schildkraut. I'm an associate professor of criminal justice at SUNY Oswego, um, and also in the part of the state no one knows about outside of the city. <laughs> uh, Benjamin? I'm Benjamin Dowd-Arrow. I'm a visiting assistant professor of public health, medical sociologist by training uh, at Florida State University. And Letitia? Hi, I'm Letitia Brown. I am an assistant professor of sociology at Virginia Tech, and this is the beginning of my second year. Awesome. So thank you, everybody, for taking time uh, out of 
a very chaotic and busy and uncertain start to the school year um, to come and check in and hang out and talk uh, talk shop. Um, so I've been asking like a very general question with all these panelists to start off with, which is just simply, uh, how are you doing? <laughs> more, more, more solemn nods and <laughs> like, how am I doing? Nobody's thought about. I've never, I haven't thought about how I'm doing. I don't have time to think about how I'm doing. Everything is just go, go, go. Well, I think you know, for me, being in criminal justice, it's a really interesting time. Um, it feels, uh, you know, somewhat kind of like heavy. Uh, you know, I study mass shootings, so of course, seeing something unfold on national television that very could have easily escalated much further than it did, um, you know, particularly in our current climate, I think really kind of puts a call to action on us to not only check in with our students, but to talk about what's going on in society. And that's a whole other thing that unfortunately graduate school never taught you how to do. Yep. That's a, a big drawback of mainstream sociology is <laughs> that when you have to engage with things that are very important, um, we're kind of just left uh, twisted in the wind. I want to kind of piggyback off that, too, because I think what uh, Jackie said is kind of important. As the other gun scholar on uh, this panel, I also teach a course uh, for sociology called Guns in Society. Um, and seeing, like Kenosha, you know, as yet another example of an individual who has open fire on American citizens who are just exercising their rights. Uh, it, it, it leads to uh, a need to make sure that our students are okay. Um, you know, because like here in Florida, we've had things in recent years like Parkland. Uh, and, you know, um, I started teaching my course when Parkland happened, you know, in 2017. So it's, you know, dealing, you know, with the students' emotions, making sure that they're okay. Uh, because there is a lot of chaos happening right now between the pandemic uh, the uncertainty, um, the uh, violence that we're seeing where, you know, the protesters are being attacked by the military, uh, the police, uh, these uh, white supremacists. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of uncertainty and there may be a lot of people who really need us to, to help them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, this violence happening uh, during a pandemic, during a time when there are, you know, massive wildfires on the West Coast and two hurricanes, as of this recording, bearing down on the Gulf Coast. Um, a lot of people um, suffering, I think, much more than usual, right? And, like, it sucks, too, because there's, like, we come to accept, like, a certain level of suffering that our students are going to go through, and it's just like, well, that's life. <laughs> but, but now, like, I think with, with everything that's happened in the last few months... Um, at least some people in academia have, have challenged that acceptance of, like, you know, if students are supposed to suffer, it's supposed to be this grind. It's our job to grind them to a pulp. And, like, and I was I was partially guilty of that. Like, I was a tests and, and papers guy, and now I'm, I'm not. Like, that's done. Um, so that's why, like, I wanted to have these panels, right, to talk about, like, how, how have we been allowed to grow or maybe forced to grow and evolve in our careers um, over the last few months. So have you, have any of you had a chance to like think about or like be retrospective about your work over the last, Letitia? Yeah, I mean, you know, this, the pandemic and all of this upheaval happened during my first year on the tenure track, right? And 
that in and of itself is supposed to be chaotic, but as a young black woman who's a black feminist scholar who studies race and ethnicity, sports, and teaches on issues of social inequality, this has been madness. And I think the reason, one of the reasons I, I mean, I feel like I've always been empathetic, but even more so now is because I'm not okay. And if I'm not okay, how can I expect my students to be okay Mm -hmm. when I have potentially more stability than they do? Not necessarily a lot of stability because, you know, anything can happen while you're on the tenure track. But it's just been really interesting. And I do a lot of um, teaching with novels in my classes. And so in the summer, I taught the novel Dear Martin. And for those of you who don't know, it's a book by Nick Stone about a young black man who attends a predominantly white high school and has these terrible interactions with the police. And this is happening at the same time as Ahmaud Aubrey. And there's no way I could have predicted that. But this book is useful every single semester, which is kind of telling and tragic. And so, like you, I definitely moved away from tests and papers to more creative projects. Like, my students did a social inequality annotated playlist, Mm -hmm. which was an incredible assignment that turned out even more beautiful than I imagined it would. And this semester in my course, Plantation Politics, the Black Sport Experience, their final project was a podcast. Just kind of a way to get students engaged with the material Mm -hmm. and the world as it's kind of in motion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even, like, so we're recording this the day after the the sudden, like, wildcat strikes that happened in the NBA last night, and, like, a lot of uncertainty about what that's going to look like moving forward. I mean, the last news I saw was that the players have voted to continue the playoffs, but I, I don't know how much I trust that reporting. <laughs> um, and I, I think we all we all know now that like I think whatever LeBron says is going to happen is probably going to happen. <laughs> and if he if he decides that they're not going to play, then they're not going to play. And like talk of talk of a lockout next year is like the biggest bluff <laughs> maybe in in the history of sports labor relations that there's there is no way in the world that NBA owners will lock out <laughs> teams in the in, yeah. in next year as as like punishment for this. Like that's there's no way. And and the leadership and the and the Players Association now is definitely smart enough to see that. So even just, like, without all the violence and, and the chaos happening, you still have, like... Like here. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we just need to turn on ESPN and, and watch, like, talking heads yell at each other about <laughs> whether or not this was the right thing to do. Right. Yeah, I think for me, um, I'm okay-ish. You know, uh, different day to day depends on what's going on. Um, I have a, a 16 month year old daughter that I, I focus a lot of time on, um, and it helps kind of build like a little bit of a barrier. Um, but I had to start a class yet. We start on Monday, so I'm getting up for that. Um, I teach a lot of introductory classes, especially topic sports. I'm mad that I'm not teaching a sports class right now. Um, so I'm like bookmarking all of this stuff going on so I can be ready for the spring um, to talk about labor. Um, but uh, a lot of what I've, I've been thinking about over the last couple of months, um, even going back into uh, last semester when we, when we shut it down, um, is how to kind of like approach a pedagogy with a sense of care mm-hmm. um, and being more mindful of that. Um, 
I don't think that I was not mindful of that coming into it, but I know that I'm doing a lot more, having a lot more conversations about what it means to become like a pedagogy and care. Yep. Um, how do we, how do I you know, create assignments in an atmosphere or contribute to an atmosphere that allows students to learn by engaging with the material without trying to handle, like the, what you learn in intro to sociology is not the most important thing you've ever learned mm-hmm. in college. So what are the things that, or skills and information we can share and talk about in this, con- in this, in this context that you can take um, and use in your, you know, in your history course or, or whatnot. So think about transferable skills and think about, you know, uh, what can I cut off the table? What's, what's less necessary to do right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, dealing with pain with a system of racial violence, um, both at a societal level and at the institutional level. The institutions are not present. You know, they care a lot of this stuff, even though they have Black Lives Matter posters and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. how do we think about care in a context where students who provide their backgrounds I think it also challenges us as well, you know, in terms of who do we want to be as professors, Mm -hmm. because I was very much like you, Andy, like, you know, my syllabus is what it says it is, deadlines, you know, I'm teaching you these life skills beyond what you're going to learn in a book, like Mm -hmm. deadlines matter in the real world and all of that, and I found myself, you know, just feeling, it's fine. You know, just having to like really kind of reassess and reevaluate how I'm approaching it as a professor and trying Mm -hmm. to put myself in their shoes as as students who are trying to learn in this, you know, chaos. Yeah. It's been been a gradual process for me. There was a a day a few years ago, a student who was very type A and like high achieving uh, didn't have, she ran out of time on an intro SOCH test um, and she came to, she came to my office afterwards and it was almost like she was having like I don't know like some kind of disassociative episode or something she was like grinning from ear to ear and was like I never I've that's never happened to me before um I don't know why I'm here to tell you that <laughs> and, but it's never happened before and I don't know what to do and I said how about you just sit down and finish the test now <laughs> like it, it's just a test it's not it doesn't matter right and then from that day forward like every semester I've become more and more lenient um, to the point now where I've, I've told them like all my classes this semester that my, my number one concern is that you're safe and that you're healthy. My second concern is that you actually learn something. And my third concern is like the deadline part of it. Um, because I know at least at my school, if I tell them like there's no deadlines, just do the work, then they'll, they'll, they'll not take that very well because they're so socialized into having, you know, I have to have a planner and I have to have everything, scheduled out and I have to know you know is it due by class period on Friday or by 11:59 p.m. on Friday <laughs> because that that extra 8 hours is going to make a, a huge world of difference somehow um and just thinking about like what am I what am I graduating seniors like what can they show for the last 4 years in my program like all the theory over and over again isn't really helpful you know Right. One of the things that I've kind of always done in my classes in terms of deadlines is to include flex days. So you get two per semester. So you can turn in one assignment two days late or two assignments one day late. And students really like, for some reason, those two days are like a big deal for them. And I'm grateful that it is. And in my class, which is online this semester, 
I've staggered deadlines such that they're like opening at different times, but you have extended periods of time to do them. Like you could do the assignment really at any moment that you want, but you can only turn it in at a certain point. Like hopefully so they don't get overburdened by mm-hmm. trying to turn in everything at the last minute. And also so that they have time to work on their other classes because mm-hmm. I know that I'm not the only class that they're in. So the amount of work that I give I feel like needs to somehow take into account that these are students who are taking three or four other classes. Like, my class is not the only class that matters. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that has come up on a few of these other panels has been, um, like, how has the shift online, for those of you that are teaching online, how has that affected how you view teaching? You know, one of the things that I... I, I was actually online in the spring um, before the pandemic started anyways because I had a, a grant that kept me up from being able to be on campus. And, you know, I think it's kind of, it's really unfortunate that people view online teaching as glorified Skype and that's been thrown around a lot um, because, you know, I know that for myself and for so many others, we spend way more time trying to create that same level of experience in an online classroom that they're getting in an in-person situation. And, um, you know, so I think for me, what I really try to do is just figure out how to be more engaging, more interactive. Um, You know, how can I create that experience better for them, which is hard to do when there's a computer screen between you. Mm -hmm. Same. So for me, the transition in the spring was my first time teaching online. I really was in, really that spring semester, for those of us who weren't already online, wasn't really online teaching. It was more like triage in the midst of chaos. And so my first real online class was in the summer. And I used the missteps and the mishaps that happened in the spring to kind of redesign what I did in the summer. And tried to make space for there to be engagement without overwhelming people with Zoom and such. And this semester in my class, like, I teach Tuesday, Thursdays, and we're synchronous. And so Tuesdays are live lectures where we have guest speakers or a lecture that I give or one of my TAs. And then we have Thursdays that are reserved for them to work with their podcast groups such that they're not being overwhelmed by Zoom. I'm giving them class time to work on this project that they Mm -hmm. might not have otherwise, such that, and like I put that very clearly in the syllabus at the very beginning of the semester, like you will have this space in Mm -hmm. order to do your work. If you want to do things outside of class, great. But I know that schedules are messy, and I have three people in each group, so they're not huge, which I'm grateful for, Mm -hmm. because it's much easier for students to navigate, because when you get into groups like five and six, is when you have people not doing things. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For me, like, I, I've been doing some level of, like, online teaching since grad school. And I was thinking about it actually earlier today, maybe a little yesterday, that um, I walked into a program and my, my advisor, I teamed for, for him for uh, about four years at uh, Michigan State. And he, his courses were, were hybrid. So... Tuesday, Thursday, and then there's like this function of there's something to do online uh, on just D2L or Blackboard, whatever the learning management system was. And um, I think I got socialized into that very early on. Um, 
So one of like going into the last spring, uh, the transition for me was about kind of simplifying kind of like the expectations and like reverting back to what I learned as a, as a graduate student. Um, and going into this semester, I'm trying to think about what's the plus one that I can add to make it more valuable without making it more work. Mm-hmm. Um, While well, I was at uh, my previous institution as a lecturer, uh, I, I spent a lot of time with the, the tech uh, IT folks. And he had a uh, gentleman named Wally. He had a, a master's degree in uh, ed, education, uh, ed, uh, K-12 education. And one of the things that he imparted on me was like, the person doing the work, he who does the work, is doing the learning. And I think that's a pretty common adage. But I'm thinking about that in terms of like online. And similar to Tisha, like setting you up to do stuff uh, in the time you're not meeting with me. So when we meet on Thursday, we are talking about what you have already done and questions that you already have. Mm-hmm. And it's about uh, helping you shape some of the ideas or answer some of the questions that you've already not wrestling with. So I don't, you know, mm-hmm. myself. Trying to make sure that you're doing these things and not trying to survey them. Mm-hmm. How do we build it in? How do, how do I design it in a way that uh, encourages students to kind of take a short process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think so, it is really. Oh, go ahead, Ben. I, I was just going to kind of add on to everybody here. I was just going to say, like, I think, like everyone else is saying, I think trying to make that shift in the spring was just a band aid on a geyser, right? Like, we were just like putting out fires everywhere. Um, I personally am not the biggest fan of online teaching. Um, I'm an extrovert. I like being in a classroom, engaging with the students. My classes tend to be heavy discussion uh, based. Uh, like I prepare in an hour and 15 minutes, like 20 minutes worth of me talking at you. And then the rest of the class time is spent in discussions. And that me talking at you is like interspersed in all that discussion. So um, for me, the, the shift has been hard. And there probably have been others that uh, you know feel similarly. Uh, this this uh, fall, I'm teaching hybrid courses and one fully online because the gun class that I teach is super controversial, and so you have to have that engagement where you meet synchronously with the students to make sure there are no misunderstandings. You know, because that's a that's a topic, especially when you start adding in the other things that we look at in sociology, like sexism and racism and all the other isms, right? And then you add in guns, which is you know, very divisive in this country. Um, so. You know, we're getting some of that, but then we have technology issues, right, where Zoom fails us or Kaltura or whatever platform that you're using. Uh, you know, like I said on Monday, it didn't work at all. Um, so we're kind of flying blind where we have these great ideas, I think, on how to engage students. Like, I love what Patricia uh, was saying about the creative projects. Uh, when I teach theory, I do a zine project where they have to, like, tell me one thing that they learned. That's really all that project is about. <laughs> one thing you learned about one theorist you like and make a magazine that explains that whole thing, right? It's really simple. Fun project. Students love it. Uh, and I love that idea, and I think that more assignments like that would be not only an improvement for the morale, but also an improvement for the field as a whole. I do a zine assignment, too, in my revolutions class. They have to make a zine design. They have to put themselves in the shoes of people from whichever revolutionary period that they want to and I I think I tell them they can't do the American Revolution because it's a cop out um, and they have the zine has to inform, incite and inspire um, and 
uh, so it's a good it's a good opportunity for them to learn more than like the very simple teaching of the American Revolution that they likely got going through uh, high school history classes um, and to branch out. And if I can get them to do like the Haitian Revolution, then it's a it's like a double win for me because um, even just the day showing them the Haitian Declaration of Independence alongside the American Declaration of Independence, like, you'll never get more like apples and oranges isn't even the right like metaphor <laughs> compared to compare the two like the the very prim and proper American Revolution to like we're gonna burn the world down Haitian Declaration of Independence <laughs> so and just to see the looks on their faces and how that can translate to a zine I'm way off on a tangent but um, <laughs> no I think you're I think you're saying it oh, sorry Cameron, go ahead what, no Tisha said it and Benjamin said it like that the spring felt like putting the like that transition felt like triage do y'all feel like we are out of it because I feel like this is more of the same like I don't know that we've gotten a, a hard reset to go into the this this year like oh we got it under control it still feels like managing a lot yeah, and I think, like, for those of us, I mean, I can only speak to the person who's teaching, you know, was teaching online from the very beginning. I look at, you know, other colleagues around my university who are going into the classroom, but everybody's just sort of waiting with bated breath to see when the shoe drops that you're going to make the exact same transition that you made in yep. the spring and pandemonium. So at that point, it's, you know, to use the previous examples, ripping the Band-Aid off, then you're going to start gushing blood and have to put a new Band-Aid on. And so it's not really, you know, getting to the meat of the wound which would have been it's not worth the money to put these kids in dorms let them stay online and learn in a healthy and safe way Mm -hmm. definitely and for me I approach this like I did my summer course like I'm not doing heavy assignments like we don't have to do 16 projects in the semester it's unnecessary so just trying to focus on like projects that help them create their podcast. So that's the majority of the assignments. There's a proposal they have to do with like an in-class presentation because we're not going to have time to listen to 15-minute podcasts for every group. Totally get that, but I want them to have the opportunity to share what they plan to do with the class. And so I mean, I feel like we're definitely not out of the fire yet. The world is still burning and we can't pretend that things are back to normal mm-hmm. like people would like to but it doesn't serve anyone to do so yeah I don't even know if we know what normal is anymore right I've yeah. only been teaching as an assistant professor for a whole year so I really have no idea <laughs> <laughs> are, are we sure that this is not normal because this is my normal it, I don't know yeah <laughs> it, I mean it could very well be right because like with all the different projections about the pandemic and all the uncertainty about the, the presidential election, like, we're looking at a very tumultuous time, right? And, and like, two different camps, I think very distinct camps in academia, um, people who are, are realizing it's more important to be kind and focus on learning, and then another camp that is really trying to, like, quadruple down on assessment and uh, punitive teaching habits and uh, what are we going to do if they cheat? How are we going to take attendance... Uh, I need to have a, a monitor on them 24 hours a day to make sure that they're not cheating somehow um, in my super important to the history of the universe class. Like, it's not... <laughs> you can probably tell how I feel about that <laughs> approach yeah. to teaching. It drives me crazy. It's so... It's just dumb. Like, it's it's bad. It's just... It, I don't... I don't get it. 
I don't I don't understand it. I, I nobody's teaching anything that is so important that we need to have cameras on students in classes. It just and if you are, then your assignments. If students are more cons- like if they're if they would rather cheat <laughs> do the work for your class, there's something wrong with your class, right? There's right. something wrong with your pedagogy. Your assignment sucks. <laughs> like be a better teacher. <laughs> and nobody's willing to say it out loud because I don't know. I don't know because the industry is just bizarre. Well, I don't know. I'll be the pessimist and say, you know, if anybody had ever actually given an online test compared to an in-person test, even if it's open book, you still end up with the same normal distribution. Yeah. I mean, kids today, they don't know how to use an index in a book. So, and you give them a time limit and it's all sort of sorts itself out. I, when I gave tests, I would let them write the test. Like that's how we did study review day or exam review day was you guys are going to write the test. And they would always think it's a trap. <laughs> and like, no. And so I would prove that it's not a trap because I, w- I would put, like, they would say something like, well, what about a question about, like, social disorganization theory? And so I would write that on the screen, like, verbatim. Like, type it out in Word. Like, what about, like, question four. What about a question about, I don't know, social disorganization theory? And they would all laugh, right? Um, and then it would, they would come to class the next day and, like, that's question number four. <laughs> exactly how as, as the student said it. Um, but nothing changed in the distribution. Uh, there were still students who failed the test, knowing knowing full well what it was going to be. Um, and so, I mean that that says a lot about like the value of testing, and probably about how I was teaching the class too, honestly. Um, so while like while we're thinking about it, like have you? Have you seen, like, discussions anywhere or just in your own experience, um, like, any kind of bad practices that have been really, like, brought to light over the last few months? I mean, the, the people can stand on either side of the debate around what online Zoom classes should look like with the camera on or whatever. Um, I'm like, if you show up, you show up. That's how I feel about class in general. This is yours. This is yours. What I, what I have seen um, and been more interested in is people talking about ungrading and that kind of shift in pedagogy. Um, and, and what it, what I'm really curious about what that bring, what that allows students to do differently inside the class when the grade is kind of like not the main focus or, or it's gotten just made on that. I think Jessica Camargo put out a syllabus in terms of sociology syllabus that's really about ungrading. And it's really interesting. Um, so I think more of what I've seen has been on Twitter and stuff like that, but people talking about uh, pedagogical practices that they think are uh, you know, progressive and kind of moving forward to think about uh, to helping students learn. Yeah, I haven't. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Is um, like self assessment for a lot of the projects? Is like you're grading yourself and you're grading your teammates and I have like a rubric of what uh, A looks like, what an A minus looks like and so I give them the language to use to describe what it is that they're doing and I'm, I'm not sure how it's going to work out but I'm kind of interested to see because I know that there are students who, because they've already told me like they are, I have a couple of master students and so like this class is not necessarily their top priority and so they're like well, what do I do? I'm like, well, you know how much effort you can put into what you need to do. 
So you do the amount of effort that works for you, and just so long as you're taking away something, I'm good. Like, I just want you to uh, get a deeper understanding of the experiences of black athletes. That's all I'm here for, and to think about sport as this site of political struggle. Like, I'm here for good conversation and discussion and to kind of build something because this is a brand new course. It's like, this is my inaugural class, and so I just want to see what works what doesn't work and kind of build from there. Mm -hmm. So giving the students the autonomy to help me create this course. So we're collaborating as opposed to I'm the dictator and you are my subjects kind of a relationship. I think that's great. I think uh, you're hitting on like some key things I think that every class should really carry. Like, you know, that's why mine are so discussion based because what does a degree really mean, right? Like, it means we're really focused on one thing, like, really well, but there's a lot of things that, you know, we don't know as individuals. And empowering students to speak about their experiences and things they do know and making them feel like they have a space to do that, I think, improves educational quality, um, you know, and improves uh, the their engagement. They'll want to come to class more. They'll want to be a part more. Uh, so, like in the gun class, we institute, and in my when I teach race and ethnicity, uh, we institute George Washington's Code of Civility. So they have to, you know, every time they speak, they have to say, "Hi, my name is Ben, and I want to say this on the topic." And then, if someone wants to, uh, you know, say something after them in response, they have to, if they're in agreement, say, "Hi, my name is, and I am in agreement with so and so." Uh, you know, and continue the point. And if they're in disagreement, they have to say, hi, my name is, I would like to address so-and-so's remark. I agree with this part. They have to start at a point of agreement and then move into where they disagree. And I found that that not only creates the civility among the students, but it makes them think about what they're about to say and do instead of just like that hot flash, you know, know, emotional response. Uh, And I've yet to have to like intervene and actually step in and say, no, what you just said is completely ridiculous, um, you know, and I'm going to have to shut you down. Um, and, and it empowers them in that way then where they feel like I I have a, a, a view that may not be popular and I can speak it because, uh, you know, in a predominantly white institution, uh, minority students may not feel empowered, even in a class of race and minority relations, right, yep. to speak about their experiences, right, because they're afraid they're going to be talked down to or condescended to. So, you know, doing something like that even just empowers the students, and then you just allow them to just speak. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was was talking to students today about, I'm teaching race, class, gender, and crime, Um, and so talking about the events last night with um, the the shooting and then the the strike and everything, um, and, and talking about how... Um, like what's the value of their education and like what does education really do um, I had the opportunity to talk to uh, Dr. Annabelle Fraser a couple of days ago, time is all weird now for me in, the, in this um, and she was talking about a study that she did on uh, sexual violence um, and it's really interesting she has her a, she's a psychologist and so she has her subjects go through like a, a choose your own adventure kind of story that she wrote um, with I think she said 160 different branches in the story um, and they're all they're all college men, um, but about fifty percent of them um, went down the path of either attempting or completing a rape. Um, and then the the boys were really the young men were really upset um, th- that 
uh, they had been accused of that in the story. And so these are these are guys who, like I think at, at probably most every college, right, have been been through those those trainings and bystander intervention trainings and have had had classes about sexual violence is wrong, but then still 50% of them uh, in this scenario at least um, were still like demonstrated that they were capable of violence, right? And so I, I really wonder, like, you know, it's something that Kevin Gannon wrote about in his book Radical Hope about how the, the some of the marchers at Charlottesville, the neo-Nazis at Charlottesville were college-educated white guys and so like what is what is even the value of a college education anymore if we can't root out you know sexual violence and uh white supremacist like neo-nazism you know um the other thing i wanted to ask you before i forget uh was that was that something that george washington did or did you just <laughs> did you so, george washington maybe i have a name let me grab yeah with him a book of uh bylaws that the about. I like the Captain America shield in the background, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> and after after we stop recording, I, oh, and there's a stormtrooper helmet, dude. Yeah, I think I we have to be like best it. friends. <laughs> and the gauntlet. And this is the other one. This is what we talk about in uh, my uh, gun class on the first day. My yeah. Bring in this book, uh, and in it, George Washington, when he was like 14, he wrote down uh, these tips that he heard about how to interact with the French salons, and, uh-huh. you know, and it's basically 18th century conversational rhetoric. Uh, and so there's things like, you know, don't roll your eyes or raise an eyebrow, which I'm guilty of when somebody <laughs> says something that I'm like, mm. right, and that's what I tell my students, that I have to work on it. If you see me do that, call me out, right? Um, but he, he has things like that in there, and then he's got some funny ones like, don't play with a pet mouse at the table while you're having dinner or something. But, you know, we go through those, and for the most part, it's about showing, you know, respect to each other, even if you disagree or you don't like the person that you're interacting with, um, and, you know, respecting the fact that maybe the person that you don't agree with may have more knowledge on the topic than you do, right? Uh, and, it, and it basically walks the students on just basically how to basically be a statesman. Uh, yeah. And so supposedly Washington carried these rules with him his entire life. And, you know, you know, for those of you who've seen Hamilton, the reason that Hamilton was be, was able to be so calm until it was Washington had such an influence on his life until Washington died. And then Hamilton, you know, and Burr and all that kind of spurred out of control. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, we, we go through most of these in, in class. Yeah. I mean, Alexander Hamilton also had, like, he was a raging egomaniac, right? He was. And, and kind of a bastard. I think it's, I mean... The, I mean, he was, uh, but like, I don't know. It's just fascinating to me that Washington. I didn't know that about Washington. Like, given the other stuff that we do know about him, right? That he would, you would consider him like carry this idea of civility so highly that he's carrying these these pamphlets around when he's, you know, uh, like mercilessly like beating troops for for threatening desertion from the Revolutionary Army or uh, making you know. Like ripping teeth out of out of enslaved people's heads and uh, you want to segue for just a second here <laughs> so like we talked about that and the beating the uh, you know the, the revolution troops a lot of that was just aimed at the militia so like we have this idea that the militia built you know the American you know uh, army and we want all these 
battles of militia. And George Washington famously hated yep. militia. Famously. Every mm-hmm. letter he wrote, he talked about how they were cowards. <laughs> yep. They would break ranks and run. If they could get two shots off before they ran away, yep. then he would consider them successful, right? Mm-hmm. And that was why he was so hard on them, because he hated them. Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. The civilian soldiers. Yep. And finally, he was able to petition Congress to establish an army, and the yeah. French came in and helped train an army, mm-hmm. and Washington was then happier. But no, yeah. he was a fan of, <laughs> like, the average citizen, which then, which is why when we read like even the Second Amendment, it says something that the NRA always leaves off, a well-regulated militia. Yeah. Right? They always leave that part off. They just go to the next clause that says the right of the people yep. shall be infringed. Um, because he was very much like you have to be trained because otherwise you're, you're useless. To mm-hmm. That's just my little segment. Right oh, no. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I could talk revolutionary stuff forever. It's just so well, fascinating. You guys, have, you guys might have your own podcast about that. Oh, there's already uh, Mike Duggan's Revolutions podcast is transformative. Uh, it's been up, up and running for... He's on his 10th revolution now uh, on a break. He's writing a book about Lafayette. Um, but he's, he's covered everything pretty much. Um, like a whole year of podcast episodes just on the French Revolution. Um... Uh, Haiti, uh, Haiti uh, uh, Spanish America, Mexico. Um, so, yeah. I actually just used his stuff for, like, when I taught the revolutions class, that was my prep. <laughs> was Mike Duncan is infinitely more brilliant than I am, I could ever hope to be. So I'm going to take notes on his work and then present it in class and be like, if you want to know more about the French Revolution, here's 50 episodes that are 45 minutes long each to binge on. Um, that's not why we're here today, though. <laughs> uh, does anybody feel comfortable talking about university responses to the pandemic? I got forty, still tenure. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> um, if not, if not your own institution, maybe institutions that you have colleagues at that you you've seen um, places trying to try to struggle with the online versus in person versus hybrid or high flex or whatever um, administrators sending letters out to students who are partying kind of like finger wagging tisk tisk yes. kind of letters uh, anybody feel comfortable commenting on any of this I would I mean one of the things that I kind of appreciate at least about tech is that we have the option I'm really disappointed in the institutions that mandate face to face because that's not feasible for everyone mm-hmm. And honestly, no one should be face-to-face, like period, the end, that's that. But if you're going to do it, to make it a mandate just seems wrong. Like, it doesn't take into account pre-existing health conditions that people might have as faculty, staff, and students. Like, we have to take those things into consideration. And so I think that, at least here at Tech, that we were given the option to choose how we wanted to approach our class without any, like, penalty of punishment mm-hmm. like none of this oh you're not going to be face to face well you're not going to be cool that's one of the things that I approve of and at least I will say like I've only been on campus once since I've been back and that was like the first time since March which was like wild I forgot what my office even looked like the majority of people that I saw were wearing masks and we're doing a whole lot of P- PSAs about wearing masks but I mean 
no matter what happens, we have so many people in such confined spaces that there's no way it's not going to explode. Everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's just going to it's gonna blow up. It has to. Mm-hmm. Now, some universities may be more transparent than others because everybody talks about, like, the debacle at UNC, but at least they, like, told the truth and didn't try and cover it up. Yeah. You know, and say, like, just sweep it under the rug, but, like, I feel like that's going to happen. It just, it's its a pandemic. We don't have a vaccine. Like, it's not in control. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just don't see it going any other way. I mean, at our university, the majority of our students are from New York City. And so when our scheduling came up, it was right around when there was that big explosion of cases. And so I was the first one to be like, uh, I'm going online. There's no way I'm setting foot in a class. But at our university, one of the things that they did is, like, they're, for the kids that are in dorms, they have to eat and, like, basically exist in these pods. And so it's like, first of all, like, how are you assigning them to pods? How are you, like, monitoring them in pods? Um, you know, we think about, uh, you know, like, even, like, with sporting events, there was a thing that came out the other day about sports with the Miami Dolphins that they were opening, getting ready to open up the arena and so they showed all of this and they're like and we're going to do screening for masks and we're doing this and that and I said well, that's great but what happens once they're in and in their seats who's controlling all of that who's controlling it and so then it brings back to are we putting basically effectively a police state into our universities to say you're not wearing your mask get out or you know and then you've got you know are we calling UPD are we sending kids out of are we just stopping class and going like there's such a disruption to the learning environment on so many levels. Mm-hmm. And, and like, mm-hmm. yeah, about, 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 you know, I had a conversation with, you know, with people in my department, and, you know, we were able to work everything out, you know, we're on board. I saw, I grew up in Georgia, so I, I pay attention to what's going on down there because my mom and brothers and stuff down there. And I watch what's happening at Georgia Tech um, and, some, and the kind of mandate that happened there. Saw some of the faculty members respond to that um, and push back against kind of the state mandate orders to go, to go back into the classroom. And I agree, but nobody should be in the classroom at this moment. Um, it's not certain, and it's an unnecessary risk uh, for all people involved. Um, one of the things that I think I've seen some talk about. Um, that I find that is a really interesting point is that as we come back to campuses, as people, kind of faculty, staff, students, we're, our, our university is thinking about the impact on the surrounding communities um, because you're, you're, you're creating these dense pockets of, uh, that weren't there in the previous months and the summer months or whatever. And I don't know, I'm curious as to what extent universities and colleges are thinking about their responsibility and their impacts as they roll out these statements and make these decisions about bringing students back to campus and trying to manage whatever fiscal or, you know, uh, the fiscal challenges or trying to return things to some level of normalcy. I don't know how the community is being uh, discussed in that in that calculus. I'm curious to see what we're discussing. And here, we, we've instituted a, a pretty rigorous testing system. I feel like that's one thing we've done really well. Um, everybody that, you know, I had to go to a funeral a few months uh, ago before I could come back to my office, even even though there's no one else in the building, there's literally no one else here. Um, the, you know, I had to have a COVID test, 
and a negative result before I was allowed to step foot on campus. Uh, and I think that's pretty good. We have a, we have a pretty good idea of you know how widespread it is here in uh, Leon County. Uh, I also like that our university didn't force anyone to teach face to face for the most part. Like we we really only opened up face to face again for this fall for what they considered essential, basically labs for like chemistry, physics, and things like that. Things you really just can't. It's really hard to do offline because you don't want a kid to have a chemistry set at home where they're blowing things up, right? <laughs> so, but you know, in public health, we were not considered essential, so we're not teaching anything face to face. Sociology, we were not considered essential. We're not teaching anything face to face. In the spring, we're we're probably going to do exactly what we're doing in the fall. But right now, they've opened it up that if it's safe, if you want to teach a small, you know, group face to face, we'll we'll allow that, depending on how safe it is. Uh, in those classes, you would be like a room that holds sixty people, and there's only like fifteen in the whole room, right? Um, so that's kind of how we're doing it, and, and and President Thrasher's been really good about uh, you know calling out when when the students violate the rules that the university has set, uh, and has talked heavily about how FSU is not going to be responsible for causing the spread of this elsewhere. So hopefully, hopefully that that will remain accurate. We will see though as uh, football season again starts to progress. Um, yeah, what do you what do you all think about some of the ways that universities have been treating students um, who come back and are are doing things that we know students are going to do, um, partying and 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 maybe rebelling against mask mandates and stuff like that. What what is your reaction to that? Just and I'm not I'm not talking about your school specifically. Just some of the stuff that we've seen in general. Um, what are your thoughts on that? What I find to be terrifying is the number of institutions that have the policy of calling, like, the police on their students. Mm-hmm. Like, that, to me, is horrifying. Yeah. Like, especially when you think about the vulnerable students and the people that are more likely to get the police called on them and the things that happen to people that look like me. Like, I just, I can't imagine mm-hmm. how that would be the default. Like, why is that the default? That doesn't make any sense. So that, for me, is, like, the scariest thing. I think also, like, the universities really need to be just honest. I mean, we all are sitting here waiting for the shoe to drop. We all know that it's going to drop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's not if, it's when. And I, I will say that there is one institution in our state system. I won't say which one. You can Google it yourself. Um, but a student came back and basically called out the institution, like, they're not doing mandated testing, no one's wearing masks, this isn't safe for me, this and that, and the other thing, and it goes up on Reddit, and the next thing you know, the university has pulled it down off of Reddit and had it pulled down. And so it's, you can't cover this up. I think the other thing as well is, and I think either we were talking about it or Ben and I were talking about it earlier, it's like, you know, there was a huge party at one of the private institutions up here on their quad, and, you know, then a letter went out from the vice chancellor, which, of course, got picked up by the news, and in this letter, it's like, well, you're all adults, and you have responsibility to yourselves and to our college community and to, you know, our, our broader city community, and it's like, well, but you also tell us when we try to hold them to deadlines that they're kids and, you know, they're not responsible for their actions, so which one is it? Because you can't have your cake and eat it too. This mm-hmm. isn't like the narrative of convenience. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, I was just, I was just supposed to have a conversation. 
I just had like an hour before this meeting. Um, you know, so you know, what do we really expect, right? Now, like it's you know, it, the college experience is about experimentation in a lot of ways, right? We experiment with you know everything about ourselves, and alcohol and parties are all part of that. You know, for better or for worse, no matter what your feelings on that subject are, and you can't expect young people to not want to do those things. I know how I was when I was 19 and 20, 21 years old, right? Um, and I, I don't know that 19-year-old me would have been okay with the whole mask idea. I would have been like, I'm not going to get sick, right? And we see that, don't we? I mean, are you guys seeing that? Kids also think they're invincible. Um, you know, it, it's like, well, I can drink as much as I want. No, I'm not going to get sick. Or I can, you know, party as late as I want and get up and go to class tomorrow. I mean, there's just no concept of reality in, in a lot of cases. And so, you know, I think, unfortunately, it takes either them catching it or knowing somebody to cap that caught it to be like, oh, crap, this is real. And you've seen even a lot of those stories from adults. Like, no, I, you know, you're infringing on my First Amendment right to not wear a mask or whatever amendment they want to choose out of the Bill of Rights. And then, you know, and then somebody gets it and they're like, no, this is real. Like, we really have to take this seriously. It's like, if the adults aren't setting the right example, how do you want the kids to follow it? I, I don't want to say real quick to, about adults versus kids. This, now, this is something that I have seen anecdotally just in the last few days. Uh, coming to campus says students are coming back to the dorms. I'm seeing more students wearing masks than their parents. It's, it's symbolic, right? You kid, you're making your kid do what they're supposed to do, but you don't have to leave that example. I think one of the things that is kind of perplexing, this goes beyond the institute, the college campus stuff, is that uh, the lack of a federal response mm-hmm. has created uh, circumstances for individual states, individual institutions to kind of uh, operate on their own. Right, so in some places, like mask enforcement and stuff is really strict. Um, the university, from 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 college to campus, from, from institution to institution, the mandate is similar, but the enforcement is different, and we don't have like uh, I think all of these different messages that are coming leave students with like, well, I'm I'm going to get by in the best way that I can. Some people are going to take the mandates more seriously than others. Um, well, I remember seeing the video circulating on Twitter uh, earlier last week. Last week. Uh, this guy who got a beer tossed on him at a, at a campus in the Midwest or whatever because he's a senior party with attorneys outside his party. And there was a, an adult who looked, she might have been in her 40s, 40s, and she was the one confronting the guy in the car about why he was there. She's like, You don't need a mask, you don't need a mask, get the hell out of here. And to the point, like, adults setting the example or supporting. You know what young people are doing. It's like there's we, to, to the question I was asked before. Like, what do we expect um, when there's no clear uh, mandate or instruction about how to move about campus? But I think we also have to talk about the elephant in the room, which is that the people at the very top who are leading the response are not wearing masks, and that's not only to say our president and vice president, but how many times have we seen governors or senators or the you know people that at the end of the day they might not have you know this utmost admiration or respect for or even really know what that person does in their state 
but they're still seeing people that are in charge not wearing masks. And so, you know, well, if they don't have to, then why do I have to? You know, the rules either have to apply to everybody or nobody. And that's, you know, where it's putting more pressure on us to say, okay, well, are we calling UPD, which is a whole other can of worms, or are we going to say, sorry, guys, you know, Bobby or Susie over here didn't put their mask on, so we're all going to leave, and now you've just paid for a class that you can't go to Mm -hmm. because someone's not doing what they're supposed to do. There's no, it's just like a no way. Yep. It's, it's the butting heads of stakeholder versus customer. <laughs> well, like, you know, Cameron, I'm also from Georgia, uh, so, like, I, you know, I also pay attention. And so, like, in the state of Georgia, it, they can't force students to wear masks, right? So, if a student comes in the classroom and doesn't want to, there is nothing the professor can do about it. Andy, you just broke George Washington's rules. You eye rolled. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I have a lot of friends and family that teach for the University System of Georgia, and so yeah, I, I hear about it, right? And how the you know they 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 ask their students, and for some of them, so far the students have you know followed that request, but. They don't have to if they don't want to. The state has flat out said no, no organization, county, or city can enforce a mask mandate. This is a dearth of leadership, right? <laughs> it is an absolute vacuum of leadership. We have elected business people <laughs> to leadership roles, a business president. And now because he's a business president, all the other business people who've been elected positions are, are just defaulting and, and not doing what they were elected to do. And that leaves us, like, who should not, who do not get paid enough <laughs> to have to make these decisions or enforce these decisions uh, to be like, well, I guess I'm kind of like a mask vigilante now. <laughs> like, I, I have to somehow lead by example when nobody else will. Like, it's... It's just incredible. But, you know, and this, this brings us to a talk about privilege, right? Yeah. When, you know, Andy, you and I probably would have a much easier time if we were teaching a face-to-face class right now than, you know, the rest of us on the panel, right? Mm-hmm. If I tell my students to do something by just my privilege and status as a white man, they're probably going to listen to me and not give me pushback. They may not like it, and they may talk about me on Twitter or Facebook or something to their friends, but they'll still do it, right? Yep. Is that going to work out, though, with black women who are teaching, who get the most pushback of any group mm-hmm. in, in the classroom, right? What are we going to see? That's yeah. why I'm online. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to see anything over here. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I'm tenured, uh, so I have privilege there. Um, physically, I'm pretty imposing, so that brings its own its own privilege too, right? Um, if I was a, a a shorter or smaller man, uh, I know that my if I had to yell at students in class for not following mask stuff, and I'm all online this semester, but if I had to yell, I don't think it would be taken as seriously if I wasn't six foot four, you know. <laughs> and, back on that too because I'm a character actor when I teach I'm a very big goffman like I embody a script and play it and so like I teach uh, you know one of the classes I teach most often is race and minority relations 
And white privilege is usually one of those subjects that comes up around midterm, right? For those of us that teach it, you know, it's usually around the middle of the semester. And so I, the character that I play that day is the angry white man. I come in, I am pointed and yelling and voice is sharp. And I basically tell everyone in the room that they are all complicit in racism in that moment because it's now the middle of the semester. Not one person has ever asked me my credentials or asked me to prove that I am, you know, qualified to be in front of them. And I'm like, how do you know? And they'll always be like, well, you're here. And I'm like, did you know that if you have 18 hours in a master's program, you can teach a college course <laughs> as long as you're still enrolled in the degree? I could have a bachelor's degree to be up here in front of you. you know? um, and the fact that you accept this and you accept it so openly and willingly without question is a form of systemic racism. Mm-hmm. right? We're all complicit in it. The fact that I have to be the one to teach you this subject because you wouldn't take it from someone who didn't look yep. like me. Right? So I can yell at the students, and they're perfectly okay with it. They think it's great. Mm-hmm. They, they, they get a lot out of it, right? So it, it doesn't hurt that I'm six foot four, 215 pounds, standing up there in front of the room, right? And granted, I dress, you know, I'm dressed, but <laughs> I'm still very tall, imposing figure in the front of the classroom. And when I start that lecture and I'm pointing and I'm pacing mm-hmm. fast, back and forth in front of the room, and my voice is sharp, uh, they're, they're stunned into silence that whole time. Yep. But nobody's ever reported me yet, or complained yet, or anything else, right? The most mm-hmm. I might get is one student writes, he was very pro-liberal activist the whole class, and I couldn't come. Yeah. Yes, but if I try to do that, it's not going to go over very well. Mm-hmm. Right. I'd be the angry black woman, and mm-hmm. I'm 5'2". So I'm definitely not tall and imposing. But one of the comments that I've gotten in the past is that I'm condescending. And mainly because it's like, well, she talked about her credentials. And I was like, well, yeah, because I have them. Like I never had to. Right. That's right. the biggest difference. It's like I tell my students to call me by my first name. It's fine. Right. I don't have to impose that I'm Dr. Dowd Arrow. Right. I don't ever have to enforce that. Because they're going to respect me just because of who I am, mm-hmm. right? And I'm not afforded that same privilege. Yep. And I recognize that I'm not, and I won't, you know, like, so I will correct students when they address me as miss. It's like, no, it's doctor, mainly because even just in terms of gender notions, all of the, you know, suffixes for women are in their attachment to men, mm-hmm. which I find to be super problematic. Yep. So I'm just like, I don't have to exist because I am someone's daughter or wife or sister. I exist because I am. Mm-hmm. Here. Or, there's, or there's the assumption that you are somebody's wife or... Right. Right. Like, no. Yeah. I'm really big about, like, let's throw away all titles to begin with, but, you know, I know that's not what realistic or, you know, within the realm of possibility for most people, but still, mm-hmm. you know, I think that, uh, like, what you're saying... Uh, it, it is a way to disrespect a person, uh, but seem polite while doing it. Mm-hmm. And it, it really limits too, like what education can accomplish, right? Because we have to spend or try to spend X number of weeks, like pushing back against all of these bad practices that they've been socialized to um, from other classes or in high school or, or wherever, right? And just living in the United States. Um, and then that means that we have less time for topics um, 
But then for those of us who don't occupy privileged spaces, that means that we may be more inclined to take either positions that open us up to feeling like we're being abused by students or just maybe like an overall more conservative kind of teaching approach. So what I mean by that is that I am uh, three years and two months alcohol free and my students know that. Um, But I know that if I wasn't a six foot four straight white guy with tenure, if I said that in class, I'm opening myself up to a slew of complaints, right? Even though I can talk about, like, is, can we think about, like, substance use disorders as a type of disability um, and the role of mental health and and all of that um, and put myself out there as, like, a positive role model for students who are struggling, I know that if I wasn't white, straight, man, I would be in a load of trouble for, for sticking my neck that far out. Right. That actually, and that's something that doesn't even just like happen to us in the classroom. So Ben and I actually had a really interesting exchange on Twitter with some other people who um, I study mass shootings. I mean, that's all I study. And I don't know if you remember this, Ben, but basically I had a bunch of guys literally trying to mansplain me about mass shootings. Ben said one thing and he was like, and they're like, yeah, totally we agree with you. And it was exactly the same thing I've been saying for like the last hour. You know, but for females who are studying what are viewed as male-dominated topics or topics that should be more masculine, we're just sort of pushed out. Even though I've been, you know, at mm-hmm. the ground floor of the party since the party started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when I think that I agree, I responded with, and Jackie is the foremost authority on mass shootings. That even though I publish on this topic, she is far more, you know, educated on this than I am. So maybe. We should listen to her, and that was pretty much where it ended. They 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 kind of stopped giving her pushback. They didn't really respond anymore after that. No, but it was funny because we had a like a pri- like a D- like a DM conversation after, and I was like, and it was funny because I wasn't going to say anything because uh, we've been conditioned as women to say, oh well, if we speak up about you know this masculinity that was just forced upon us, then somehow we're weak or we're complaining or we're doing this. And it was actually Ben who was like, yeah, I don't think they would have done that if that was me. And so that kind of gave me permission to say, yeah, that was really messed up. But the fact that we have to feel like we can't be the ones to even broach the, you know, disrespect that we're treated with or the minimization that mm-hmm. we're greeted with, um, it, it's just insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is like another way to think about how how does online teaching and especially because I, I think there's probably going to be, like, let's say that everything somehow miraculously can go back to normal tomorrow. Like, there's going to be a percentage of us who decide to stay online, right? So how does, how do you think, or do you think teaching online can help push back against some of that discrimination that that some faculty might experience? Can online be... Can that that the distance that that online creates kind of negate some of that discrimination or amplify it or is just like no effect at all? And I know this isn't something that hasn't been studied. This is purely just thinking out loud. I would say probably too big to determine. I want to I want to believe that Defoe was right when he said that education is the cure all. 
I don't know that I actually do believe that, but I want to believe that. And I think that online provides us with more opportunities, really, than we get in the classroom setting. Because you can bring a whole bunch of other things into the mix. You have your Zoom lectures or your PowerPoint recordings or whatever, but you can also bring in other uh, outside videos or readings and things that you wouldn't normally really get to spend a lot of time on in the classroom. And so I feel like it at least has the, the opportunity to force them to confront things that they wouldn't normally have to confront. Um, you know, uh, one of the things, too, before the pandemic that I would do when I didn't have to teach online was I would make sure that tests and assignments were not unlocked until they completely watched something. So they had to, like, go through the entire thing. I've turned that off because of the pandemic, but... Um, they would have to watch all, you know, my lecture. Then they would have to watch the videos that I put up and do all of, actually open the readings uh, before the quiz or test or assignment for the week would come up. Um, so I think it has the potential, but I think everybody's correct. Because mm-hmm. We don't know. I, I do think one of the good things that online affords us is an ability to think and edit ourselves. Um, not that we should edit what we're saying, but to, you know, like if you think about the difference between getting into a heated argument versus, you know, taking space and, and thinking about your thoughts and writing them down and then revisiting that before you send the email or the letter or whatever. I think online is giving people that space to be more thoughtful in how they present their arguments um, or, you know, how they present themselves. And I don't think that people really get that in the classroom, which is probably why we see only certain students speaking up. Um, you know, one of the things that I picked up off of Twitter is this idea of blogs. And what I've noticed, um, even just this week in their introductory blogs, is I have students who have, I've had for multiple classes who don't say a word beyond the required 400-word discussion post, you know, opening up and telling me all these things about them that I never knew because they were doing it in a space that was just theirs that it wasn't in a discussion board, that they didn't have to, you know, kind of hold their breath, you know, waiting for whoever was going to respond to them, that it was just between me and them, mm-hmm. that they could be more open and have that space. And so I think, you know, the more that we open ourselves up to these alternate practices or alternative practices to the, what we think online learning looks like, I think we'll create more of those opportunities for students. Yeah, like I just keep coming back to, like, what are we actually teaching like what is, what is the outcome, and, and as you're talking, like I, the irony of it like really hit me too because we're we're so obsessed with assessment and and at least where I am, my intro social class is part of our like accreditation right so I have to I have to have data from there to show how many students hit objectives X Y and Z, my criminology class is the same way, um, and so even though we're assessing like all of these outcomes that we think we're hitting, like very clearly. I mean, all you have to do is watch like five minutes of the news to see that, that higher ed, at least at least what we do, like maybe we haven't been, maybe this is like a validity issue. It's like reliability and validity kind of thing. We're just, what we think is education might not be education, you know? But you think about, like, how we all got into grad school, right? We all took the GRE, or we probably most most of us took the GRE, 
I didn't get a 1600 or whatever it was. I'm probably dating myself as to when I took the GRE. I didn't get a perfect score, and I turned out just fine. Like, not everybody's a natural test taker, and I personally don't like standardized tests. Whenever I did the part with the reading comprehension, it's like, line number this. And I'm like, well, why am I going to read a whole thing? I just going to line <laughs> number this, you know? So I think, you know, assessment is not... It's not a realistic way to measure your outcomes because, what? first of all, what are your outcomes? I mean, I tell my kids in theory, do I really care if I walk past you 10 years from now and you can regurgitate routine activity theory to me? I mean, you should be able to. It's the best theory ever. But, you know, like, do I really care? No. <laughs> well, having having a theory cage match podcast is maybe another spinoff project. <laughs> <laughs> That's like 90s-style criminology, though, <laughs> right? Two well, theories enter, one theory leaves kind of approach to science is also not <laughs> the best idea. I think probably the thing that I... that line that I would say that would be the biggest force for a lot of folks to think about is to the question, what, what, what do we mean by education? And less about like, what do we teach them? What is really explaining? How do, how do we get them to demonstrate? Um, because how do you do that? in person may look a little bit different than how you do it in class, but I think that is, when you ask me, and I'm on this podcast, I'm going to say it, um, that should be our focus. How do we get students to demonstrate what they have in class? And any assignment that, the better the assignment allows us to kind of students say, I saw this in class, or I read this, and I'm looking at it. I'm applying it to this thing, and this is what it means, or this is how it makes me think about the world differently, or whatever. Those are the those are the those are the things that I'm trying to get students to do in class. I think a lot of the things that I'm seeing online is like good pedagogy, and hey, this this assignment's interesting. It's moving in there. Like, I wrote down Zine like 50 million times in my notes because I keep seeing it come up, and I'm like, okay, this is something that students can do. Mm-hmm. But that the application of I mean, tell me what this means in your world mm-hmm. is. Is probably the most useful thing that I think students can get out of education, whether it's in person or hybrid. Mm-hmm. We just have to figure out as educators, like, how do we invite students to do that type of work? Mm-hmm. Well, I think somebody mentioned, like, a choose your own adventure thing earlier. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if it was you, Andy. Yeah. Um, one of the things, like, I'm teaching crime in the media this semester, and they all have to do a project where they pick a topic, um, something crime you know, offender, event, whatever, but they have, like, ten different ways in which they can present their research. And it's, like, Zine is actually one of them. They can do a podcast. They can do, like, a recorded lecture. They can do all of these different things because, again, not everybody learns the same way. Not everybody processes the same way. Not everybody delivers the same way. And I think once we move away from everybody's got to take a test, everybody has to write a paper, everybody has to do this, that, and the other thing, and we give them more options and we give them more freedom to be creative, I think we'll start to see a better end product in all of them. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> always be one. Always. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, when I when I moved to, away from traditional stuff last year, I had, I had a few students who were very upset because they had gotten used to the rhythm of blue books and lit reviews. Like, I thought this is another Wilsack class. I thought this was going to be another like two blue books and a lit review now you gotta tell me I have to make a podcast I have to make a victim memorial like what the F am I supposed to do with this <laughs> like, well yeah, 
run from the scene at first until they actually realize that it allows them to just, you know, talk about something, you know, that means something to them. I wish, yeah. uh, I'm just moving into a new office. I don't have any examples with me, but I wish I did. But, like, you know, some of them do, like, phenomenal work that is just so personal to their lives and they show how these theories that we talked about in class mm -hmm. I also did this in the race class that they applied you know some of the critical race theories you know as well but uh, how they apply and it, they, they end up really loving those kinds of assignments that's what this was saying earlier about these creative assignments I think that's like great yeah and they, it's giving them more skills too right graphic design better communication skills, stuff that they're not getting from an exam. By staying up all night the night before to memorize 75% of a theory <laughs> to, to hope they retain it, you know, eight hours later and then forget about it <laughs> within 48 hours. Like, that's... What does that accomplish? I mean, that, that creates a, a world of, of people with social science degrees who are super cynical, right? Who see themselves who are alienated, who see themselves as having been churned out of some kind of machine, who are still just as vulnerable as people who didn't go to college to being swept up into populist neo-Nazi rallies <laughs> just to pull one out of thin air, right? And it's... I can attest to that. Like, some of my earlier work in grad school was political sociology, and we went to the Trump rallies as he was running for office. And uh, our educational sample of the people in that range from no degree to a master's degree. So, mm -hmm. I had I had students at the time who were going. They were they left class to go straight to to get in line at the arena here, and I was like, wh I remember thinking like, what? Why are you going? And they're like, oh yeah, so and so's got a, a full like uncle like glittery Uncle Sam costume he's gonna wear. That kid ended up getting picked to be on stage. Uh, he was heavily intoxicated, um, which some of the students thought was amazing. Um, that they got one of their buddies on stage hammered at a at a convention or at a, at a rally. Um, I think why why is this happening? <laughs> Political podcast. We can talk about that because we went to three of his rallies here in Florida. We went to Panama City, Jacksonville, the one here in Tallahassee. Uh, pretended to be political undecideds. You know, if, as you can imagine from my accent, if I throw on a flannel shirt and some boots, I can pull off libertarian really well. And, uh, you know, so we'd be political undecideds and just asking the people in the crowd, you know, what, what about this Trump guy? And so, yeah, there was, it, was, it was very eye-opening and interesting. Slap a John Galt bumper sticker on the back of your car. Uh, Gary Johnson, man. That's <laughs> what, all about Gary Johnson. Uh, you know, and at the time I was heavy. Uh, you know, that's where I thought my career path was taking me. Um, until you know, it was all these Trump papers we, we get rewrote for um, out of this data, and, and I was just soured uh, by the end of it. <laughs> but it was really, it was really the election soured me. Like, cause, you know, a lot of like you would hear really the most horrible things a human being could ever say about other people. Some of it at the rallies, it was much more explicitly racist and sexist. Racism was the biggest driver. Um, and you would hear it, and but you would keep telling yourself, you know, there were five of us on this project. At least he's not going to win. And yeah. then the election happened. Yeah. And at that point, like, we had these grand dreams, like, after the election. 
we would go back and re-interview these people and see if there was like any buyer's remorse or anything like. And it happened, and we were like, I, I was, I was the person saying this. I'm not doing this. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't want us to get uh, any more down a depressing <laughs> topic of conversation. And I've certainly taken up enough of your time for one afternoon. So um, thank you all again for taking time out of your very busy lives um, to hang out and talk about how we're doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so If you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at HeyDrWill. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.